It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. So what else is new? The Mets go to Atlanta. They lay an egg. They find a new way to lose to the Atlanta Braves. They drop a game under 500. And what was yet another frustrating, lifeless Met loss. This time, the losing streak extends in Atlanta, the house of horrors. As Joe Beningo would say, you could change the stadium. You could change the players. You could change the manager. It doesn't freaking matter. The Mets can't win in Atlanta. It is now five straight losses down there. I think it's like 17 out of 21. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. A brutal loss to the Braves. We'll get to that. We'll get to the DeGrom news, our reaction to that, how that changes his legacy with the Mets. But let's start off with this game. This game was so incredibly frustrating because we got teased. We got sucked in. You know, after Carlos Carrasco gives up that home run to Ozzie Albies and the Mets are down one nothing, they responded. And the guys who responded were the guys the Mets needed to respond. Francisco Lindor, the height of this batting slump, behind one and two, batting left-handed, hits a two-run bomb. Right off the bat, you could tell it's gone. It flips the score from down one nothing to up two to one for a myriad of reasons. This is a huge, or it felt like, huge moment in this game. Francisco Lindor needed that more than anybody else. You erase being down one nothing. The Mets, for the first time in what seems like forever, show that they don't always have a glass jaw. And then Pete Alonso backs it up also behind in the count one and two, gets a hanging slider from Bryce Elder, and he hits the absolute piss out of the baseball, I'd say halfway up. In left field, in that lower level, about halfway deep. And all of a sudden, we go from losing one nothing. Carrasco looks shaky. It's going to be another typical night where the Mets can't score any runs to going up 4-1. to one. But you knew something. You knew something even after Alonzo hit that home run. You knew deep down the Mets were going to have to score more. To hold down this brave team, averaging five runs a game, with Cookie Carrasco on the mound, and then the Met bullpen, it just didn't feel realistic that the Mets were going to be able to beat the Braves the way they beat the Philadelphia Phillies, or the way they've won a handful of games this year. Four to one, three to one, two nothing. They were going to have to score runs. And I love Pete. I love Pete. I thought overall, Pete looked really good at the plate. He almost hit a home run in the first inning. He almost hit a home run in the sixth inning. And even the ninth inning before he struck out against Iglesias, he also nearly hit another home run. So I thought he looked good at the plate. But if you didn't see this, it was caught on the Brave broadcast. Right after Alonzo hits the home run, he's in the Met dugout, and he starts taunting Bryce Elder. He starts screaming, yeah, throw that again. Yeah, throw that again. And look, here's my only issue with this. If you're going to open up your goddamn mouth, 
You've got to back it up. Now, Pete did, but guess what the Met offense did after Pete Alonzo opened up his mouth? I'll give you a hint. They recorded one base hit. They had three base runners overall, one aided by an error by Austin Riley and a two-out walk to Brandon Nimmo, or one-out walk to Brandon Nimmo when he looked like he struck out twice. The Met offense did nothing. And it's bad enough that it did nothing, but it made it worse that in the moment, I'm watching Pete Alonso basically talk trash to Bryce Elder. Well, to Bryce Elder's credit, he goes out and throws three more shutout innings, keeps Atlanta in the game. The Mets do nothing against the Brave bullpen. And it is what it's a typical Met loss. Yeah, they scored four runs. Great. Let's have a freaking party. They did nothing outside of that. Nothing. And then we've got the mistakes, the mistakes that losing teams give you. And it all really came to a head in the seventh inning and then really in the eighth inning. In the seventh inning, Carlos Carrasco just loses it. And I don't think anybody saw this coming. He got the big double play of Acuna to end the fifth inning. And obviously, I don't have an issue with Cookie Start in the sixth inning. Two, three, and four of the order coming up. Buck is in a hurry to get Drew Smith warming up but he's going to give Carrasco with a three-run lead a chance to get through the sixth inning. He walks Matt Olson, and then it took no time, no time at all, for Austin Riley to rip a double and for Sean Murphy to change the game with the two-run double. Would I have pulled Carrasco earlier? I think maybe before the Murphy at-bat, you could consider it because Carrasco put the two guys on base. But I didn't have an issue with him starting the sixth inning. I didn't have an issue with him facing Austin Riley even after he walked Matt Olson. The Murphy at-bat, maybe. Maybe. But he gives up the two-run double. And even at that point, I wasn't sure Buck was going to get him out because I wasn't sure if Drew Smith had enough time to warm up. But Buck slowly does his trot out there. They get Carrasco out for Drew Smith. It's not a bad performance by Carlos Carrasco. It's going to look bad because the final line is five innings, four runs, and that's not good enough. But going into the sixth inning, he's at five innings, four hits, one run, one walk. That's his line before the sixth inning. He goes to Drew Smith, who for two batters does a great job stranding that runner on second. But here's where the mistakes come in. He gives up the double to Marcelo Zuna to tie the game. And Marcelo Zuna, I mean, when he comes through with a big hit, when he does something damaging against the Mets, it's just infuriating. First of all, he's a bad guy. Everybody knows that. And just second of all, I just hate everything about him. I hate his swing. I hate everything about Marcelo Zuna, from his days with the Marlins to his brief time in St. Louis to now in Atlanta. But after the RBI double, Drew Smith commits a huge wild pitch. And so then when Arcia gets the infield single, It scores the lead run. Does it score the lead run if Smith doesn't throw a wild pitch? Maybe not. Probably not. That's mistake number one. Then we go to the eighth inning. I love Jeff McNeil. But first of all, earlier in the game, it was actually in that sixth inning, and I forgot this mistake, so let me go back to it before I kill McNeil again. On that double by Riley, McNeil's not throwing a second. He's throwing a third. It really should have been a single by Austin Riley. But Jeff McNeil is throwing a third base. He's throwing to Lindor, who then throws to second. So you give Atlanta up by three, another free runner in scoring position. That's a mistake by McNeil. The other mistake was the physical mistake 
when Eddie Rosario, as the Braves are up by one run and God knows we can't give him any more insurance, laces a one-two double with one out, and Jeff McNeil drops the baseball not once, not twice, but three effing times. So instead of Rosario on second, it's Rosario on third. Then they can't turn the double play on Ozuna because Brian Snitker, rightfully so, is sending Ozzy Albies, who just beats that throw to second base to start, despite not sliding. And even though the call on the field is out, you knew he was safe. There's your insurance run. Not that it effing mattered because the Mets went down one, two, three in the ninth inning to the immortal Raciel Iglesias. So you've got mistakes in the outfield by McNeil. You've got a big wild pitch by Drew Smith. You've got Smith giving up brutal two-out RBI hits to Ozuna and to Arcia. Seven and eight of the batting order. Could you imagine the Mets getting big hits from seven and eight of the batting order? And you have an offense that after the third inning does absolutely nothing. Let's get to the Buck decision. He decides in the eighth inning with A.J. Minter on the mound to pinch hit for Omar Narvaez, and he does it with Tommy Pham, not Francisco Alvarez. I'm going to surprise you here. I actually didn't hate that. (laughs) And the reason I didn't hate that is because Tommy Pham's actually been relatively hot. He had two home runs on Sunday. He's had all his home runs against lefties, and Francisco Alvarez very quietly, and I do think this is quiet because of all the attention on other Mets, Alvarez is over for his last 16. Since Alvarez had the big weekend in Colorado and the big home run in Colorado, he's put together a big over. So, yeah, you're using two guys. I get it. You use Fam to pinch it for Narvaez, and then Alvarez has to come in the game. But the truth is, in this moment, right now, ninth inning or eighth inning in the case of this, I'd rather have Tommy Fam up. I got to be honest. Alvarez is slumping. The problem I had was prior to the game. Because prior to the game, Buck Showalter force-fed us Daniel Vogelback. And Daniel Vogelback, and don't smile at me, Hoff, with your stupid little all-star voting, Daniel Vogelback went 0-4 with three strikeouts and a hard-hit ground ball to second base. The problem with your little all-star bid is his ass is going to be unemployed in days. And you can't send an unemployed DFA guy to the All-Star game. It's not my fault that MLB put him on the ballot. So that that's first things first. It'd be amazing if we could send him there, but that's besides the point. Let me just tell you something, okay? Uh, you talk about, you know, fam's been on fire lately a little bit. This offense is, quote-unquote, embarrassing. The, you, there's no one on fire. Pete Alonso and Francisco Lindor, I sit there and I look at their numbers and arguably like the, the Pete's got the power, the RBIs are there for both Alonso and Lindor. But besides that, I don't even care that Nimmo's batting 290. It's not freaking good enough. I look at, I, mean, I hate to compare, but you look at te- Texas Rangers, almost everyone in that batting, batting lineup is batting over 300 with an OPS over 800. We have guys batting 212, 220. That's not good enough. It's everybody. Even if a guy goes on two or three games in a row with a hit streak, it's still not hey, good enough. I'm not trying to tell you that Tommy Pham is a Dolis Garcia. I'm just trying to tell you he's a better option late in the game down by a run than Francisco Dude. Alvarez. Who's old for his last 16? That's all I'm saying. Yeah, but but because of what he... Uh, listen, God, thank God he hit two home runs in one game. But it's like, 
Yeah, they're professional ball players. They should be doing that more often. It happened once, so we got to tip the cap. Like, you know what? <laughs> Let's go him over Alvarez. I'm sorry, but Alvarez is going to be playing every day still, even if he's oh, but, but, but hold on, hold on. I agree. I would have started Alvarez. And I'll tell you exactly what I said on the air when I saw this lineup. If you want to start Omar Narvaez because you just activated him, I don't have an issue with that. Like, play Omar Narvaez. But even though they made the decision, and we haven't talked about this because this happened, you know, after our last Rico to DFA Tomas Nito to not go with three catchers, I think Narvaez, even though he was pinch hit for today, is less likely to be pinch hit for it than Tomas Nito. And if you want to shift your DH into catcher, yeah, you lose the DH. It sucks. You can do it in an emergency situation. So what I would have done with this lineup before this game on Tuesday was I would have caught Narvaez and DH'd Alvarez because my DH options are all not great right now. Vientos hasn't hit enough. Daniel Vogelback is just abysmal, beyond abysmal. We all agree he shouldn't be the guy starting. So then keep Alvarez's bat in the lineup. I don't want to bury him because he's old for his last 16. I'm just merely saying in the eighth inning, down by a run, I've got to send someone to the plate. I'm not telling you they're great options. I'm telling you someone has to hit. So let's play the game of here are my options. I've got Omar Narvaez against the lefty. I've got Tommy Pham. I've got Francisco Alvarez. I've got Mark Hanna. I've got Mark Vientos. I also know that Alvarez will enter this game if he doesn't come in as a pinch hitter because he has to catch. Those are all your options. We always play this game. Okay, where would you go? I'm just telling you based on recent events, the fact that the guy hit two home runs two days ago and I need a home run, I'm down by a run, he's the best option. I don't want to put him in the Hall of Fame. I'm not calling him Honus Wagner. I'm just telling you, eighth inning down by a run, he was the best option. And I will say this. Francisco Alvarez has proven in bigger spots to come through. Though he's 0 for 16 in his last whatever, I still would have trusted him in that spot. And I would have, I would have, even if he struck out, I would have still been happy with it. I, I just think Buck has to think long and hard about playing two catchers because Daniel Vogelback can't play anymore. He, he just can. He has been abysmal at the plate. I thought maybe getting away from City Field could help these guys, especially Vogelback, because he's not going to hear the boos. He's not going to hear that frustration coming from Met fans. Now you're in Atlanta, where the only thing you'll hear is that occasional, I have a stomach ache, let me do the tomahawk chop chant. And Vogelback was awful. And I think he's, honestly, I think he's days away from being DFA'd, days away from being gone. But even if he isn't DFA'd, Buck's got to play someone else. And now with Narvaez being up here, your new option, if you love Narvaez that much, is to DH either him or Alvarez. Now, Viento should still play. I want to see what this guy is. I want to find out if he can be more than what we've seen in a brief period of time. But this lineup today, going in a game one, just pissed me off. Because not only are you playing Vogelback, you're batting him fifth. You, you're saying... The guy I want to have protect Alonzo is Daniel Vogelback. Now, is that why the Mets lost this game? There's a myriad of reasons why they lost this game. They didn't hit outside of the two home runs, okay? That's not because Vogelback's necessarily hitting fifth. It's because nobody's hitting. I mean, literally, like you said, Pete, nobody's hitting. And we could do a podcast or 10 minutes on each player that's not hitting. So we don't have to concentrate on one guy. We can concentrate on everybody. 
because nobody's been hitting, or at least very few guys have been hitting. Starling Marte has shown a pulse, but not today, not in game one. He went 0 for 4 and struck out twice. So this was just a very losery kind of loss. It was just typical of a bad team and a losing team. And what this series now comes down to, and granted they have to score runs, we all know that, we're going to find out what Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander are made of. Because this is why they're here. This is why they are here to pitch and win the big games. Now, the problem is for Max and Justin, it may have to be one nothing. I'm sorry. Because there's no promises that this limp offense is going to wake up. And boy, the angry emails were just pouring in throughout this game. Let me read one. And we will spend a lot of time on the Grom. We'll get to that coming up. This one from Ben A. Ben A literally wrote this email at 11.21, and I think the game ended about 12 minutes later. So he's in the midst of watching this game as he pens this email to you and I. Evan Pete, I've been Mr. Positivity and Patience when it comes to this Mets team this season, but tonight's loss pissed me off to no end. And again, he wrote tonight's loss before the game was over. (laughs) I think it was probably after... Maybe the Brett Beatty double play in the seventh. Maybe when the Braves scored the insurance run. Maybe when McNeil bobbled the ball three times in left field. (laughs) It may have been the McNeil dropped the ball three times. It may have been. It was all good when Lindor and Alvarez, uh, I'm sorry, when Lindor and Alonzo hit their two home runs in the third. But then came the kiss of death. The video clip of Pete screaming out to Elder. Boy, we think alike. Throw it again, please. After hitting his home run, you knew what was coming next. The team has a glass jaw and no killer instinct. They went down to Atlanta with the division on the line and got punched in the mouth three times and never fought back. You want to know about this group of guys? This is who they are. They get punched in the mouth by San Diego, end the season with one stinking hit in their second elimination game. It's all fun and games and humping railings when things are going good. But a couple of weak innings and the heads are down and the shoulders are slumping and the fight is gone. Where's the Mamba mentality? Do the Braves do that? Do the Yankees do that? Except when they play the Astros. That's his line. And he's not wrong. The problem with this is I have no clue how to fix it. Who do you bring in? Who's the Kobe or the Michael to bring in here that doesn't accept the losing, the light and fire these guys? The season is starting to feel like 21 and it's freaking miserable. P.S. Oh, he does let us know when he wrote this. I started writing this in the top of the eighth because it was obvious how this one was going to end, even though I could have written it the second the score became 5-4. If we come back and win, I'm still sending it now so you guys can get a good laugh. <laughs> oh, I'm getting a good laugh. I, I, I am deeply concerned by a lot of what he said. And that is when you have the season end the way it happened last year and you get swept by the Atlanta Braves and your response, forget the Washington series at the end of the year meant nothing. And your response with three games in your own building is to lose the way they did in three to San Diego. And then your response when it's pretty much the same team, this is the same roster that experienced that pain is to come out and start the year 30 and 31. And when you go to Atlanta, the sight of the season turning, and other than one good inning, you do nothing, it is deeply concerning that this is just a soft team. How do you change that? I know in the past, 
we hear about, well, bringing in Keith Hernandez in 1983, trading for Gary Carter, whatever leader you want to come up with. Robin Ventura as a free agent addition in 1999 after the collapse of 1998. So we can go through Met history and find the right veteran player that brought that kind of toughness. I don't know if it's a fix like that. I'm not sure that's the answer to all this, that there's some veteran player we're not thinking of who can come in here and light a fire. We thought that was Max Scherzer. Now, granted, he's a starting pitcher, and it's only every five days, but he didn't perform when they needed him the most. So you could try to light the fire all you want. If you go out and suck in the two biggest starts you're making, what does it mean? So is it a talent deficiency with this team, or is it a they don't have a killer instinct deficiency with this team? I think it's a both. I think that they, the talent that Billy Epler brought in last year was good enough and almost like a, uh, I don't want to sit there and say that the shift helped out a little bit, but they're just not performing the way that they need to be. And I they're just so lackadaisical, and they don't have that killer instinct. And I don't. Th- you're right. There's no one out there to get. The only thing you can do, and it sucks, is to fire Buck Showalter. That's it. It's the only move you can make. To, I'll tell like, you say, why I don't like it. I'll tell you why I don't like it. Now, in general, I'm a, hey, sometimes you got to fire the manager to get a team going. There are so many examples of it. Last year with the Philadelphia Phillies, firing Joe Girardi. Uh, the Astros, when they made their run to the World Series in 2005, fired their manager. Even when the Mets fired Willie and they hired Jerry Manuel, there was a spark, right? The team got sparked. They didn't make the playoffs, but they clearly started to play better. A couple of reasons why I don't buy it. Now, there'll be noise for it. There'll be calls for it. Maybe they'll even cite some of the examples I just gave. But I'll tell you what's different about it. Number one, he's been here for such a short period of time. A year ago is his first year here. He was the manager of the year. And while some of the in-game decisions are different, and we've been more critical of that, his demeanor is no different. The other thing that I think is really important, and I have been given no indication this is the case, is that you have to lose a locker room. You have to start having guys not give a crap what you're saying or not respect what you're saying. There's no indication that that's happening with this manager that bringing in a new voice is somehow going to change that, that firing the veteran with all this experience is somehow going to get this team going. So while I'm not against the firing of the manager to spark a team, I don't think this situation is ripe for it. And I think it's just desperate grabbing at straws for something. And I get it. Like, I would want to change something too. I'm a fan watching every game. You want to try something. But I think that in this case, with this manager, in this situation, it, it would just be the wrong move, in my that's, opinion. Th- that's fine. But but you say, like, you know, it, you know, you want to try certain things. They've tried certain things. Like, they've brought up the young kids at times. And they had a spark. They added a little bit to it. And then either, A, they're not playing enough. And B, maybe just the team around them just sucks. Like, I'm sorry, but maybe Mark Hanna is just not the guy that we wanted to be. Eduardo Escobar isn't the guy we need him to be. And that's a problem. And if you can't, if they're not going to change, maybe you have to light a fire and be like, hey, guys, manager's the first guy gone. You're next. 
No, I think DFAing guys can do that sometimes. They just DFA'd a popular guy in the room in Tomas Nito. I think they're going to DFA Daniel Vogelback. I think that eventually we're going to start to see him. And we're seeing it with Alvarez and Beatty. Like, Brett Beatty has not lit the world on fire by any stretch. He's playing, I don't want to say every, every day. He's playing most days. Most days he's going out there. The Vientos thing, I'm not as confident that's going to change. But the young guys are playing. And so... I just think the firing the manager is a desperate plea when there's no other thing that you can try. And I, I just think it's stupid in this case. I really do. I, I got to be honest. I think it's dumb. The guy's been here for a year, and that's the trick. That's the magic trick. Let's promote Eric Chavez. Let's take <laughs> Carlos Beltran from the front office. Like, come on. This is crazy, like, Twitter ideas, in my opinion. I just think do- it would be foolish. Do you, do you know what's dumb, by the way? What's dumb is bringing in Omar Narvaez to be a catcher to begin with on this team. To have Tomas Nito to sign him. I know he's had our, they, they bought him out of arbitration. They didn't spend a lot of money there. But to bring him in, to, to pay off Jeff McCann to go somewhere else when you had a young catcher who was dying to come up here. That's not and why they're struggling, though. I mean, no. you can nitpick all these moves, but that has nothing to do with why they're 30 and 31. Yeah, but but dude, the inconsistency it all it, the inconsistency all over the place. The the, the fact that the, the the GM never went to go for the jugular and try to bring in some excess talent that they needed. He's brought the same team back. We just said it. They brought the same. Exact they brought team the same back. team back, and virtually every single guy is having a crappier year than they did last year. Despite all the home runs, Pete's hitting, and he's hitting a ton of them, and he may end up hitting fifty five of them. The guy's got four doubles this season. The guy's batting average is down 30 points. Like, Pete's not having a bad year. I wouldn't call it a bad year, but he's not having this amazing year. Lindor's had a worse year. Brandon Nimmo recently has gone backwards. Like, a lot of Nimmo's numbers that still look good have been kind of built off of from the first month when he was hitting 340. Brandon Nimmo has had some horrific at-bats, and I never say that about him, but he has. The first at-bat of the game against Bryce Elder, he struck out on three pitches. The at-bat from Friday that we talked about last time on the Rico, first and third, nobody out, swings at the first pitch and pops it up. Despite the numbers, Nimmo recently has gone backwards. Jeff McNeil has gone backwards. Francisco Lindor has gone backwards. Like, pop the bottom we can go through what they could have done in the offseason, but everybody that's here has sucked. And that's got to change. That's got to change. And you you said before the season started to go, just imagine the, the team that they have, like Alonzo and Lindor, they had a great season, but it could be better. And you talked about how could be. Es- Escobar can't be any worse than he was last year. Well, well proved us wrong. <laughs> listen, speaking of being wrong, and we'll spend more time on this train wreck of a team. We'll do another Rico, especially after this series is over. Let's get to where we were both wrong. And that is about Jacob DeGrom. I wanted the Mets to keep Jake. A lot of it was emotional. A lot of it was, I'd rather pay the guy and take the risk on the guy that's done something for us. Obviously, with the news that came out Tuesday, I will admit, as I did on the air, I was wrong. The Mets would have been far worse off keeping Jake, unfortunately, because he does need Tommy John surgery, which is the big one. And I have, it's funny, that's always been the fear every time Jake had an injury over the last three years. Every time. Whether it was some scares in 2020, 
a lot of scares in 2021 before he was shut down, everything from 2022. I would always have the worry that it's the big one. And obviously, Tommy John, especially for a guy at his age and a guy that's had it before, that's the big one. That's the one where I always thought if he ever needs it, his career is probably over. Him needing it now sucks. And if you're a Met fan who wanted DeGrom gone and you think he didn't want to be here and you couldn't trust him, you were right in terms of our debate. And I'd be the first to admit it. You were right. The Mets were better off not investing long-term in Jacob DeGrom because now we know what happened. And what happened was he's probably never going to be the same again. He may never pitch again. It's on the table that Jacob DeGrom never pitches again. But when you think about everything he did for this franchise, everything he did for us, and he ain't getting paid by us, he's getting paid by another team. Everything he did for us, and then if you saw the press conference where the guy is crying about the fact that he knows what we know, which is that he may never pitch again. I question if you're a Met fan, if you don't feel bad about what just happened, if you don't feel bad, because the time for debates, it's over. And you know why the debate's over? Because you won and we lost. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to work out great with Justin Verlander. It doesn't mean the Mets are going to win, but clearly just separating Verlander and separating any kind of replacement they could have had. Jacob DeGrom is never going to be the same. He made six starts this year. It doesn't matter what he did in those six starts. Never lost the game and pitched relatively well after his first start, but it doesn't matter because he's not going to pitch again this season. I really would be surprised if he pitches next season. And now we're talking about a 36-year-old guy coming off a second Tommy John surgery. If he ever does pitch again, I don't know how long it can be. So when I got this news and I was on the air when it was happened, I felt horrible for him. I felt horrible for him. Then I started to shift towards his legacy. And as painful as this is to say, I think his Met legacy just got insured. I really do. Because I think what could have changed things with Jake is going somewhere else and being great. Because then there would have been Met fans who said, as conspiratory as this is, he never wanted to be here. He was faking injuries. Now he wins a Cy Young with Texas. And I think that the bitterness that some Met fans had towards Jake would have built and it would have gained steam. And I don't know if you ever would have looked at him the same way. If he wins a World Series with Texas, if he wins two more Cy Youngs, I think there would have been, not from me, not from Pete necessarily, but from other Met fans, this CF that guy. And I think now, like I said earlier, if you're a Met fan with any sort of compassion, you're going to look at what happened to him and say, yeah, he got his money and he definitely got that. But, oh my God, he wasn't faking injuries for three years. He wasn't refusing to pitch because he wanted to get out of here for three years. To my partner, Craig, he wasn't a hypochondriac for three years. There was something wrong. Now, why was there something wrong? I always surmised back in my days with Joe that it felt unnatural for somebody to throw that hard that often. He would throw 100 miles an hour on almost every single pitch, and it scared me. And it made me think it wasn't natural. Is that what caused all this? I can't tell you it is. 
I don't think we'll ever know. But I think the fact that he is career now, barring some kind of comeback with Texas where, and, and again, even if he does come back, I don't know what he can actually be. An average middle of the rotation guy? Like, I don't know what he can be. I know Justin Verlander successfully came back from Tommy John at a later age and won a Cy Young. I don't know if DeGrom's built that way. Like, I just don't know if he's ever going to be able to pull that off. And so I really think, not for me and you, Pete, but for other Met fans that started to dislike him, I think your love for him or your appreciation for him will come back a lot quicker because he's never going to do anything for another team. He's just not. And now when you think of Jacob DeGrom, I think you're going to think of him pitching here. You're not going to think of, I can't believe he left. He left for what? Six starts? He left for what? Tommy John surgery? Like, I think in a weird way, this only improves his Met legacy, as sad as it is for him. Now, you know, I I don't, I can't disagree. I think there's still people that are going to still have that thick-headedness and say no matter what, Oh, he was, he wanted the money. He wanted to leave. He never wanted to be here. And that's still going to ring. Like the Carlos Beltran stuff. The fact that he went to, you know, checked in with New York, the Yankees, before he came to the Mets, that's always resonates with a lot of people. And that's why they downplay Carlos Beltran's career. But you're right. The fact is, he gave his best numbers to the Mets. And the one thing I will say over the past three years, whether it's hypochondriac or whatever, was he pitching differently because they knew he knew something was up with his elbow? I mean, didn't Sandy put out some sort of report and say something like they found something and they weren't so sure? Sandy said he had a partially torn UCL. Now, when you have that, sometimes you could pitch with it. Masahiro Tanaka pitched with it for many years. Adam Wainwright pitched with it for many years. Jacob DeGrom denied that. I, I can't tell you that that injury was real that Sandy was right, Jake denied it, and that that's what eventually snapped this? I I don't know. I'm certainly not a doctor, but clearly, I'd say since, I want to say 2020, 2020 he made 12 starts, and I think if you pitched the whole year, you would have made 15. So he basically pitched a full year, but he had a lot of scares in 2020. So to me, I would start the DeGrom breaking down period in 2020. 2021, and Gary Cohen said this on the broadcast, when he pitched in the first half of 2021, he put together maybe the most dominant first half in the history of baseball. He was that good. But as he was doing that, he was coming out of games. Uh Uh-oh, he felt something. Uh Uh-oh, no hitter after three innings, he's coming out. So even as he was pitching to a 108 ERA and almost making every start, because he made 15 of them in the first half of the year. So do the math. He was on pace to at least make 28, 29 starts. There was scares every other week. So I don't know if all of this and all of those scares led up to this, but here's what I find really interesting about DeGrom. If Jacob DeGrom never pitches again, his career numbers are ridiculous. That They are. And don't give me the win total. The win total is so out of it. In 2023, he would have pitched to a 2.53 earned run average, a 2.52 ERA in his time with the Mets, which is right there with Tom Seaver. Now, a lot less innings. I get it. It's a different era, though. So for anyone who attacks the innings, I mean, yeah, he's not, he's going to come up small compared to Bob Gibson. I mean, well, of course, everybody is. 
So we have to look at him in the context of this era. And in the context of this era, he was as good as it gets. But here's what I wonder about DeGrom. And I want to bring up Koufax, not to compare innings, because we know it's a different era, but in terms of the invincibility that Sandy Koufax created. And leave out innings and complete games, because obviously Pedro Martinez, Jacob DeGrom, Johan Santana, they can't match that. We all get that. But what Sandy Koufax did at the age of 30, coming off a stupidly amazing Cy Young year, was retire. He retired. In the middle of his career, with the numbers still in bold on baseball reference, Sandy Koufax said, I want to be able to lift my elbow when I'm 50. And so even though you can't see what's wrong with me, and medical science was obviously very different back then than today, he walked away. Sandy Koufax had five of the most brilliant seasons a pitcher could have in the history of baseball. Look it up, five. But he left at the top of his game, and he left with the legend intact. Johan Santana. That's who I'm going to bring up. I'm not, I'm not even getting the DeGrom. Let's get to Johan Santana. If you look at Johan Santana's absolute dominance at the peak of his performance when he's winning a Cy Young with the Minnesota Twins, a second Cy Young with the Minnesota Twins, finishing third in the Cy Young voting with the Mets, winning three ERA titles, leading the league in innings, Johan was at the peak of his game. If at age... I guess he would have been 30, 31, kind of like Sandy, said, I'm done. Look, I'm a little guy. Yeah, I got some years left on my med contract. I don't want to pitch anymore. I want to be able to lift my elbow when I'm 50. Same thing Koufax said. Would we think differently about him? Or because he tried to pitch through injury, and yes, he pitched a no-hitter in 2012, but then couldn't get anybody out, and then went to camp with the Orioles and tried to pitch. Does that hurt him? Like if Santana said, I'm done, let's get to DeGrom. If Jacob DeGrom, after winning the Cy Young in 2019, said, I'm going to stun everybody, I'm out. Yeah, I know I went back-to-back Cy I'm out, I'm done. I feel something's off with my health, and I don't want to do this. I have kids, I have a wife, I'm out. First of all, we would have all been like, what? You're under contract, you're a Met. But let's say he said that to us. Let's say he said, I'm done. I'm co-faxing this. Would we think differently about him? And my point to this is, do we think differently about Sandy Koufax? And obviously we didn't see him. Some of our listeners have. We haven't. But do we think differently about him because we never saw him human? We saw him as a Superman walk away at the top. And while Santana got hurt and struggled and DeGrom got hurt, never really struggled, but could not stay healthy. Do we think of them differently? And does that, is that the reason why Johan Santana will never get to the Hall of Fame? Why Jacob deGrom may not get to the Hall of Fame? But Sandy Koufax is regarded as the greatest pitcher in the history of baseball. You hear that from a lot of people. Sandy Koufax is the greatest pitcher in the history of baseball. I'm not here to argue with them, but I am here to say, do you think it's possible that leaving before we saw the vulnerability is why you think that. It's like, I don't want to make this comparison, but I am. It's like assassinated presidents. We never saw Abraham Lincoln get ridiculed for reconstruction. 
We never saw Jack Kennedy get ridiculed for Vietnam. They died at the top of their game. I know that is just a brutal. You don't like that comparison, Pete? Uh, too soon? That was yeah, too soon. That was phenomenal. I actually think that that that's the best comparison of all time. I don't know how you pulled that one out, but that's amazing. <laughs> I do think there's something too when we see vulnerability, and we saw it from Degrom, and we saw it from Tim Lincecum. I'm not suggesting Tim Lincecum is a Hall of Famer. It's more the idea of. When a guy dominates, and Lincecum did it for four years, so it wasn't quite five, but it was it was close, and he never led the league in ERA. He did win two Cy Youngs, though, and he did, but if he would have, after 2011, said, I'm out, you know what? I, I could just feel it's not going to end well for me. Like, almost you could tell the future, and you didn't care that much about money. You're like, I'm good. And by the way, speaking of money, it does bring up the Koufax thing. If Koufax was playing in an era in which you were getting paid $30 million a year, does he necessarily walk away? I don't know if he does. I don't know if he does. It may be easier to walk away, even though you don't have that life savings to live on, but you're not making $35 million a year. So there's going to be a lot of discussion on, hey, did DeGrom do enough to be a Hall of Famer? And the reason my knee-jerk reaction is to say he falls a little bit short is the Johan thing, that Johan is not even considered. And if you look at Johan's dominance with Minnesota and briefly with the Mets, I think the top of DeGrom was better. Don't get me wrong. But Santana's not even considered. And he won two Cy Youngs. But we saw him immortal. Not immortal. We saw him mortal. We saw him human. And I wonder if that affects people. And so Jacob DeGrom over the last three years, as great as he's been when he's pitched, like we haven't seen him, we haven't seen him pitch badly by any stretch. He's had his bad moments. I know Met fans were all going to remember Oakland last year, but for the most part, he was really good. But we saw him brittle and we saw his inability to stay on the field. And that sometimes affects people more than just leaving at the top of your game the way Jim Brown did, the way Sandy Koufax did, the way Barry Sanders did. If Barry Sanders started to break down as a running back, what would we think? Would we think differently about him if we saw the ugly part of his career? With that said, I stand by something I said when he left as a free agent. I feel more confident about it today than I did then. No one will ever wear the number 48. He will get his number retired. And I do think that most Met fans, even those that turned on him, would give the man a standing ovation. In fact, if the Mets call up Jake privately or talk to the Rangers, because I don't know if they could talk to him privately, it'd be tampering, and say, look, come to New York for the series in August. We want to honor you. Not putting you in the Hall of Fame necessarily, but we want to give you the tribute video. It'd be cool if you were there. And Jake agreed. And the Mets played a tribute video before one of those games. There is not a doubt in my mind he would get a standing ovation. Not a doubt. And I think a part of that, as sad as this is, is that his ending, potential ending to his career, almost in a weird way makes Met fans feel better. And that doesn't mean you're happy about it. It doesn't mean you should root for it. No one is. But it's the piece of, okay, 
We made the right decision. He's not going to do something spectacular anywhere else. And as effed up as that sounds, I do think that's the truth. And I think that's a part of why the healing from Met fans will be easier and he'll get a, a, a bigger ovation. I texted Sal. Actually, Lakata texted me because he's a bad guy. And he says to me, still want DeGrom back. Which I thought was, come on, come on, Sal, really? And I wrote him immediately and said, I'll take my L. Like, obviously, I was wrong about the risk-reward of bringing him back. And I said, I feel bad. But then I asked him a question. I said, you're better to answer this than me because I love the guy. Pete loves the guy. We're fans of Jacob DeGrom. But 10 years from now, don't you look back at Jake more positively because it's incredibly unlikely he does anything for another team, that this is it. This is his career. And Sal acknowledged, absolutely. He got the money he deserved from another team and gave his best years to the Mets. It's odd to be on that side of things. And he's right. And I do think so. Even Sal, who we argued about DeGrom, I think even he says, yeah, of course. When I look back on him, I'm not going to have these weird memories of him winning a Cy Young with Texas. And it makes things easier. But from a human standpoint, I know he has a lot of money. Money doesn't buy everything. The pain in his voice, the tears he would fight back as he talked about this is heartbreaking. And you feel terrible for Jacob DeGrom. Yeah, I mean, I, I I can't really add too much to it because you put a, a som- like very somber uh, feel to this whole conversation. Because I do – listen, I, I don't want to be too emotional, but I do love Jacob DeGrom. He was – I think he was one of the more underappreciated Mets of all time. I don't think Mets fans really knew what they had. You know – Every start was – I felt like it was special when he was at, at the t- height of his game. And we – again, like we almost like – a lot of people pushed him aside, like get out of here. Like we almost ran him out of town. I don't think a lot of people recognize what they had. And like you said, 10 years from now, I think people will be bowing down to the fact that Jacob DeGrom was who he was for us. No doubt. Now, I hope he does come back. I hope he can add to his resume, but I think it's likely that this resume he's put together is what will cause many debates for years and years concerning the Hall of Fame. Because I think it's an interesting debate, and I've had it with various players or about various players over the years, which is if you are the best at what you do, but it's a short period of time, is that enough? And I give you a great example for a lot of our friends, a lot of Yankee fan friends say this about Don Mattingly, and they're not wrong. For a short period of time, Don Mattingly was the best player in the American League. There's no question. And by the way, I would ask that same quitting while you're on top question about Don Mattingly. If Don Mattingly, who was really battling with back issues at the age of 28 years old, his last all-star year, when he hit 23 home runs and drove at 113 runs and he was 28 and it was 1989. If Don Mattingly had a press conference and said, I know you guys don't see this. My back is killing me. I'm not playing anymore. I'm done. I just gave you the best five years of my career. I won an MVP. I led the league at RBIs one year. I got these massive numbers, but I'm done. Does Don Mattingly waltz into the Hall of Fame? Maybe he does, because what hurt Don Mattingly 
is the same thing that hurt a lot of the other guys we just talked about. I kept it to pitchers, but I think Mattingly is a great example. He started to look human and look average and look like not the guy who he was in 1985 and in 1986 and in 1984. So when we don't see a guy struggle, we just see a guy say, I'm out. It changes the way we view him. We'll spend more time on this because I do think it's a fascinating debate looking at the Grom's legacy compared to others who dominated for a short period of time. Would you put David right up there in that conversation too, or no? Is he he wasn't as no good? because no because I don't think as David was really good, really good. He was never the best, and I think with Santana and Degrom and Mattingly, they were the best. They were the best at what they do for a short period of time. I adore David Wright. I don't know if he was ever the best. Not that he was the best third baseman. Yeah, maybe. But I'm talking about the best. Was he ever the best player in the National League? No. So I think it is very, very different. We'll have some more Ricos throughout the week. Obviously, this series against the Atlanta Braves, plus coming up, the could have been offseason, which I guess we'll spend some time on the could have been of of re-signing DeGrom and what that would have looked like. By the way, if the Mets re-signed DeGrom and this happens, then again, you know what we call that? David Wright. Because that's pretty much what happened. They kept David Wright, and that last contract was an unmitigated disaster because he couldn't stay healthy. Either way, uh, we appreciate all the emails. Sorry we couldn't get to all of them. The Rico B at gmail.com. The Rico B at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening to Rico Bro. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>